This is an ABC podcast. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Good afternoon, Jane McNaughton here with you today for the Country Hour. Today I'd like to hear from you about the state of your local roads. It's often a bit muddled exactly which level of government is responsible for what part of the road, but the Warrnambool City Council is trying to get on the front foot. They've deployed a camera van to survey their local roads. Now we often talk about the problems with regional Victoria's roads, but today I'd like to hear the solutions that you've got to fix the problem. What needs to be done in your local area to address the quality of rural roads? 0467 842 722 to get in touch. And first today, though, we have rural news with Emma Fields. Good afternoon, Emma. Hi, Jane. Making rural news. Let's start with the flooding disaster in Queensland's Gulf of Carpentaria. Chopper pilots have been working around the clock to evacuate people, move cattle, make fodder drops and resupply remote properties. Helicopter pilot Jack Clark has joined the effort and says the stock losses he's seen near Burketown have been horrific. The biggest thing is the depth of the water. Never been so deep in a lot of places. Been a lot of never happened. Been through a lot of houses, never been through before. Hundreds of years of being there, so. Yeah, and what are you seeing cattle-wise? Ah, oh, catastrophic, catastrophic losses. Cattle swimming around for days on end here, so they just can't get to them all. Yeah, work the worst of it. Where they, where thousands are trying to get on one little dam square or that, up into a turkey's nest, and they're just smothering each other. And, yeah, they're dying all underneath. They're just a pile of cattle. Yeah. Plenty of cattle flat rounds hung up and hung up in trees and that. There's, yeah, every day you go, there's more and more scattered everywhere. You look down, there's cattle hung up in trees dead. Many still swimming though. Yeah, there's still plenty swimming, mate. There's well, it keeps changing. They but up this northern end of Burketown, especially on the eastern side of Burketown. It's pretty bad, eh? They bloody is going to be in it for days and days and days. But... And still on the Northern Floods Station, along the Georgina River, right on the Northern Territory Queensland border, have been inundated with floodwaters. It's understood the homesteads of Austral Downs and Lake Nash Station both have water through them. Ben Olszewski lives in the community of Alparam, which is on Lake Nash Station, and he says the water hasn't reached the community yet, but locals can't believe the extent of the flooding. They're very concerned about the station. There's a very, very long history between the community and the, and the station, and a lot of the people were born in and around the homestead from here, so there's, you know, they're seeing it as a... A tragedy. Their neighbours, the station is, uh, and the community's got a, a very good relationship, um, a long, good relationship. Yeah, the community's sort of, well, especially the older ones, just really heartbroken about what's what's happened to the to the homestead. The current status is people are just, it's it's a really mixed mixed bag. People are just amazed at, at what it all looks like. It's just, it's bigger than anything in our lifetime. And to New South Wales now, where nine new cases of the varroa mite have been identified across the state's central coast and hunter regions, 
in a major blow for authorities who've been working to contain the parasite, which is deadly to bees. The Central Coast Red Eradication Zone has been extended and now covers almost the entire region. The New South Wales DPI says this means all beehives and equipment in the affected areas will have to be destroyed and the treatment of wild bee populations on the Central Coast will be prioritised to prevent the mites spread further south. To the rice industry now, which last year set a goal to increase its water efficiency by 75% in three years. The industry wants to be able to produce one and a half tonnes of rice per megalitre of water compared to the current average of 0.8 tonnes per megalitre. To help achieve that, a new entity has been created to find better rice varieties called Rice Breeding Australia. The organisation's new CEO, Georgina Pangilli, explains their goals. The Australian rice industry is a leader in water productivity and we obviously want to stay being that leader globally. So it's about ensuring that our rice growers are productive, profitable and sustainable into the future. One of the ways in which uh, we can combat that is by using genetics to breed varieties that are able to grow with less water. And so Rice Breeding Australia has been formed to be able to do that and to take varieties out that will actually accelerate that opportunity. And let's finish with some good news. A $26 bottle of Clare Valley Chardonnay has just won the title of the best drop in the world. Taylor's Wine secured the top prize at Germany's prestigious Mundus Vigny Grand International Wine Awards after more than 7,500 wines from around the world were judged. Taylor's Wine Managing Director Mitchell Taylor says the team worked hard to perfect the top drop. We're over the moon. It really highlighted all the hard work we've put in to create this wine and this blend, particularly too with some of the you know, difficult conditions that we've had over the last four years within the industry, particularly when it has come to drought. International markets like China have been cut off in the past. So to be recognised on the international stage like this, we really did feel um, quite humble but also uh, really, really excited to celebrate. One to grab for the Barbie this weekend, Jane. But that wraps up Rural News. Thanks, Emma. And there is nothing wrong with a $26 bottle of wine. Nothing wrong with a $13 one either. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. In a bid to avoid the local road network crumbling, Warrnambool City Council has deployed a camera-fitted van to survey the roads over the next two weeks. The van will travel over 300 kilometres of sealed roads in the region, but there are concerns that even once the areas of concern are identified, that the council budget will not be able to cover the costs of upgrading the network. Warrnambool City Council Mayor Denny, Debbie Arnott says maintaining the roads was prefer- preferable to repairing them. We've got a, a, well, it's actually a brightly coloured van driving around, checking out all our uh, roads, our sealed roads. It's got a roof-mounted camera, so that's going to allow us to check the current condition of the road, of the road network. And we know that roads around regional Victoria, this has been a sticking point for many people for a long time about the conditions. So why do you think it's important to be proactive about this? Well, the thing is, sometimes roads can actually look okay, but once they are studied properly, they can be seen to be disintegrating. And our survey, the last amount of data was collected in 2019. So this is enabling us to have some really good comparative data and it will allow us to check 
the condition of our roads and then it, and having that data will now allow us to act accordingly on trying to fix the most um, in need of repair roads. So what's so special about this camera? Can it see more than the naked eye might be able to? Well, I think so. I'm not really sure about that. It, it's, well, it obviously gives us comparative data and I don't know how far down it can see, but it does go over all of our sealed roads. So, so that's 312 kilometres of, of a sealed road network throughout our um, city council. Does the council have enough money to potentially pay for fixing all of these roads? We know the council budgets have been stretched for a very long time now. Well, we never have enough money. That That's the whole issue. So um, with some of these roads, some of them will fall into our infrastructure category and, and maintenance, but we will always be looking for further grants, further help from the state government to keep our roads up to scratch. And look, we realise that this is just a, a, a um, statewide um, problem and issue and being the weather that the state has experienced over the last few years, um, heavy traffic, you know, crumbling roads, it's just an ongoing issue. So we're trying to be a little bit more proactive with it and um, we'll keep the fingers crossed that we can get further funding and help us to um, maintain and build better roads. So the roads that we're talking about, is it a mixture of just residential but also potentially roads that are used for freight? We're actually at quite a small municipality. So we've only got 312 kilometres of road to look after, which isn't compared to some municipalities. They've got, you know, huge amounts of roads to look after. So our our requirement in comparison is a lot smaller to some of the other municipalities. But for sure, along some of our highways and things, we do have um, those big... Uh, transports, uh, trucks and things. And when the weather has been bad and it's inclement, um, you do get further wear and tear on the roads for sure. So what do you want from the state government? Money. <laughs> How much? <laughs> lots and lots. <laughs> oh, that's very facetious, isn't it? Look, like I said, I can't give you a figure on that at the moment. Um, we have received some funding to do up one of our roads which is a, going to be a thoroughfare road. And that is great. That is fantastic. But the need is always there. We're, we um, will always be advocating for more funds. And because, you know, it is a major issue. It's a safety issue. We can see with traffic stats this year, there's been a lot of accidents. So, um, yeah, we need to really um, get on, get, try to get ahead of the issue, which is not going to be easy. And when you have been communicating with department officials or people in the government ministers, do you feel confident that they're listening? I'm sure they're listening, but maybe their hands are tied as well because, this, like I was saying, there's such a need in so many municipalities. Whether we're high priority or not, I'm, I'm unsure. But the need is so great. It's one of those big infrastructure things throughout the whole state, isn't it? Warrnambool City Council Mayor Debbie Arnott speaking there. Are you in that area? What do you think about what the council's doing to try and prevent local roads crumbling? 0467842722. Or if you're in a different area of the state, is your local council doing enough to maintain the roads? On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. 
Jane McNaughton here with you today. It is 16 past 12. And let's talk finance now. As the government's decision discussion around superannuation has got some farmers worried, especially the concept of unrealised gains. The concept has come up as part of the federal government's plan to double the tax rate on the nation's largest super accounts from 15 to 30 per cent. Labor says this will affect about 80,000 people who have over $3 million in their super fund. As David Clawton reports, that includes a lot of people in the farming community and it's got them and the federal opposition hot under the collar. This taxation of unrealised gains is something that never occurs within our tax act and it's going to affect far more than the very small number of people the government indicated they said 80,000 many many more that's susan lee deputy leader of the federal opposition she says labor's policy on superannuation is shambolic a lot of farms and small businesses hold their assets in self-managed super funds and run their businesses through self-managed super funds and In terms of holding assets, the suggestion that you would be taxed on unrealised gains in those assets on the way through before you actually sell them is impossible. And it's not an approach that has ever been taken to taxation law in this country before. And nobody has any clarity. And all we are being told is we'll work out the detail later on. Tony Mayer from the National Farmers Federation is also scathing about the policy. What the Treasurer has done is, uh, is demonstrate perhaps a couple of things, that he doesn't necessarily care about agriculture or he doesn't understand agriculture, and that's pretty disappointing. $3 million sounds like a lot of money to the average punter, but farmers don't get super contributions from employers. They have to build up their own, and Tony Mayer says self-managed super funds are the way they do it assets like uh, the property and and other assets that the business might have uh, can be put into superannuation to make sure that the employees of that farm, if if it is the owners in that case, they're not necessarily um, paying themselves superannuation like a government employee or would or a corporate employee. So the farm goes into a superannuation account and it does have to build up over long periods of time. So it does take, you know, many years for that asset to appreciate and that could be the the lump sum of the superannuation package for for that business. Now, um, when the succession planning situation comes around, if it's, you know, parents leaving the farm and their children taking over, it gets really complex around how that asset can be divided up from a superannuation perspective. And what it might do in this worst case scenario is, you know, dampen investment, uh, hold back uh, succession planning. We know we've got an ageing population and, you know, we actually need to work through and it can't just be a, a blanket statement that, you know, because you've got more than $3 million in assets, and it does sound like a lot to... You know, if you're living in urban Australia and you've got $3 million in your superannuation account, a lot of people would say, well, that's quite nice. I wish I had $3 million in my superannuation account. But when you look at it from a farm business asset point of view, uh, you know, you'd be be struggling to get uh, a moderate, decent-sized farm for $3 million these days. Julie Scofield from rural financial services firm Boyce says the proposed changes to superannuation are a massive issue for her clients. And while most of the publicity has been around the $3 million cap, she told Cara Jeffrey the biggest issue is the new tax on unrealised assets. Here's how she defines that. 
the difference between uh, the purchase cost and what the market value is at the time. And so um, people may have purchased property, whether it's farms or commercial property or residential property within the super fund and they've experienced um, a valuation because property needs to be revalued quite frequently when held within a super fund. So that's what we talk about, the unrealised gain. And it's not just the farm that could be taxed under this proposal. Listed equities as well. So any assets that have gone up in value in a super fund environment, but it's really, really important to note that it's for people with balances greater than $3 million. Before these proposed changes would come in, is there any way that people can put it into farm management deposit schemes or anything else that you can do and get it out? Uh, My biggest recommendation to everyone is to wait. Let's get through the um, state election and also the federal budget in May and they that hopefully it will provide more detail um, around what the changes will be and um, and let the lobbying happen um, as well because that will have a big impact upon the final outcome. There's a school of thought that taxing unrealised capital gains on land might help reduce housing market inflation and budget deficits, but it could be farming families as well as Australia's rich who could be paying the highest price if the policy gets through the parliament. That report from David Clawton, Cara Jeffrey and Christy Reading. What do you think? 0467 842 722. Is this going to affect you? I'd really like to know. Uh, Simon has messaged in saying that Labor's superannuation tax policy was Liberal National Coalition policy when they were in government. It was their idea. So why are they so against it now? Simon says he thinks that's conservative politics. What's your opinion? 0467 842 722. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. A growing number of wineries in Victoria are using infield sorting this vintage. Now, you might be asking what that is. The units remove matter other than grape, or MOG for short, meaning just the fruit is trucked to the winery and the other vine material is left in the vineyard. Kelly Hollyworth explains. This isn't your average load of Pinot Gris being tipped into a winery crusher. It's a lot cleaner than what's picked with a standard wine grape harvester. This vintage Duxton Vineyards is using five infield grape sorters. Duxton Vineyards grape and wine commercial manager Tony Allen says it has big benefits at the company's winery just outside Mildura. It increases throughput through the crushers a lot. Uh, There's less waste coming out the end of the stemmer. Um, so, yeah, it, it makes processing in the winery so much quicker and so much easier, especially for red grapes. Will it have an impact on the wear and tear of the equipment at the winery? Yeah, for sure. So the less uh, mog that you need to remove from the bins, um, the, the smoother processing is. So um, you've also got the risk of putting uh, sticks and materials like that into your bag presses which can cause damage so the mog removers have been fantastic so far. Are you expecting it to improve the quality of the wine as well? We're hoping so we're doing some trials actually with AWRI this year with and without the mog removers so we'll get some analysis done on that and uh, we'll compare that analysis to see uh, whether the, the leaves 
the stems, the stalks uh, are contributing to phenolic compounds in the juice. So um, we'll do uh, a taste assessment on that as well to, to compare the different uh, trials. In the Murray Valley, wine grapes are harvested in the cool of the night, and that's when the infield grape sorters are put through their paces. The chief viticulturalist at Duxton Vineyards, Chris Nye, is my tour guide. We're looking at Pinot Gris here. So we've got about oh, 10 rows to pick, and then we finish this variety. We're just looking at the mog remover here. It goes through to the sorter, separates the leaves from the, uh, the mog from the uh, grapes, throws the, the mog out on the vineyard, and leaves, leaves the, uh, the uh, grapes just in the bin. What's prompted Duxton to go down the path of giving equipment like this a try? Oh, it's, it's sustainability. We bring in probably about anywhere 5 to 7% mog. So if we reduce that and leave on the vineyard, then we don't freight it. Um, we don't have a mog issue um, at the winery. Um, we, can, we can speed up the process of the fruit because it goes through the crush easier and, 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 and through into tank. So there's, there's a lot of savings. We get more juice because um, we don't have to run the fans anywhere near the speed to take, take the mog out. So we, we get, uh, you know, anywhere probably from, from 30 to, to 60 litres a tonne, we think, from uh, touching that juice instead of spinning it out the fan. This equipment's been used in South Australia for a little while now. Yep. How does the machinery in the Murray Valley differ to what is needed in some of those cooler climate regions? Yeah, well, we used we used it in the um, Barossa a couple of years ago, and, and the big big problem with with not um, um, bringing to the the uh, warmer climate areas the bigger crops, higher yieldings was was the capacity they couldn't couldn't actually get that that tonnage of fruit through. Um, so we either had to slow down, um, which no one wants to do, um, or develop a, a, another machine that was bigger and. It, It'd, it'd take, you know, this one's meant to do 30 tonne per hour. So uh, initially the ones in the Brossi, you know, you're looking around 5 to, to 10 tonne per hour. So they're quite small machines. And you can see this one here, it almost takes up the whole conveyor. The bin that's collecting the grapes is definitely a lot cleaner than I've ever seen it before. Normally it would be filled with a lot of leaves and other fine material. Yeah. Were you shocked at how good a job it does? Yeah, look, oh, as I said, I've seen it in the Barossa, we used it on, on a bin um, a few years ago, and it made a real, real difference there. So we so we knew they'd work. Um, to this extent, I, I wasn't sure, um, but we're finding um, that once once we've been able to set them up and, and get them and change a few settings, like at nightly, depending on the pick, um, it's like setting up a harvester, I suppose, you've got to set up the mob as well the mog remover. So once we've sort of learnt that, we've been able to get these results. So we're, we're really wrapped. The winery loves it. Um, and it's really good for us here. You know, we, we can we can take, you know, um, or pick probably a little bit with less experience um, because we can fix it through the mog. So as long as we don't hurt the vine and get all the fruit, we can, we can get rid of that excess mog. Do you envisage that there'll be more of these machines in vineyards across Australia because people cotton on to what, what they're capable of doing? Yeah, I think I think the wineries will start to demand it. 
um, you know, you look at the, the, the big wineries like ourselves and Treasury and, and um, you know, all, all, all the big ones, they just, you know, the, the amount of mob that they get in, the amount of mob they pay for, and if, if it's somewhere between, even if it's 5% of their total price is mob, um, the throughput through the winery increases, so their efficiencies get better. So I think they'll start demanding it. Once now that they're on a commercial scale, not an R&D, then, then I think you know, wineries will sort of demand it and growers will take it on. Chief Viticulturist at Duxton Vineyards, Chris Nye, ending that report by Kelly Hollingworth. And just going back to a previous story we had on the Country Hour earlier today about the idea of unrealised gains and the concept uh, that has come up as part of the federal government's plan to double the tax rate on the nation's largest super accounts from 15 to 30%. Farmer Joe has texted in saying that the discussion paper on superannuation around taxing increases in capital value was a department paper, not a government paper, and has already been dismissed by the Treasurer. This is just scaremongering by the VF, sorry, by the National Farmers Federation. Thank you for that, Farmer Joe. And another one coming in saying uh, how ridiculous superannuation is for individuals' retirement and not farm business succession planning. What do you think? 0467 842 722. It's just clicked over to 12.30 here on the Country Hour, so time for news headlines. Good afternoon, Michaela Audelin. Good afternoon. The board of a daycare centre in northern Victoria, where a child was allegedly left on a bus for several hours, says it's working with authorities. Shepherd and three-year-old Eliza Morrison was hospitalised with heat stress on Friday after allegedly being left in a Lula's Children and Family Centre bus for five hours. Police and the Department of Education are investigating and staff and the family affected have been offered counselling. A coroner has handed down three recommendations to Victoria Police after a 16-year-old girl was killed during a police chase in 2017. Jacqueline Vaudun was thrown from a stolen van on the Western Freeway as the driver fled from police. The coroner recommended better equipment and training for police officers conducting chases. Police are investigating after a pontoon boat was driven into a houseboat several times in an incident on the Murray River at Moama at the weekend. It's believed a woman on board the houseboat declined entry to a group of unknown men on the pontoon boat when they asked to board. The men then allegedly became verbally abusive towards the woman, exposed themselves to her, threw glass bottles at the houseboat and some climbed on board. Member for Murray, Helen Dalton, says she's been targeted by Clubs New South Wales for her position on cashless gaming cards. In a statement, Clubs New South Wales says there's no active or planned campaign against any sitting MP or candidate. The owner of a power station near Trelgan says plans to expand the plant's ash dump won't change its closure date. The Loy Yang A power station is set to close in 2035. Its owner, energy giant AGL, is seeking permission to expand the plant's ash dumps, which would have enough capacity to store coal ash until 2043. And residents who were staying at the Mickleham Flood Relief Centre have moved into other accommodation closer to home. The centre will close tomorrow, while the Almore Events Centre, which is still holding around 140 flood-affected Rochester residents, will stay open until August. That's the latest in news. For more, visit ABC News Online. Thank you for that, Michaela Audelin, with your regional news headlines. Time to get a check on the weather now. Joining us from the Bureau of Meteorology is meteorologist Matthew Thomas. Matthew, good afternoon. 
Hello, how are you? Not too bad. It's looking pretty nice here in Ballarat. How about the rest of the state? Yes, it's um, look largely um, cloud-free over much of the, the state, um, apart from some cloud about the um, the eastern ranges and um, and some cloud beginning to build about the, um, the the southwest. A little high cloud just pushing over um, western parts of the um, the Wimmera and the, the Mallee as well. But um, but yes, um, temperatures. Um, warming up today, generally a northerly stream. Um, we are expecting to see some, um, some isolated afternoon showers develop over um, central and eastern Victoria, mostly on and um, south of the ranges. And there is the possibility we might see some thunderstorms, um, most likely about um, Gippsland, but also possible about the Otways, the Surf Coast or um, the, the Barwon um, catchment. Um, just a, a slight chance on those thunderstorms um, and um, we're, in terms of the rainfall should be fairly dry for, for much of the state. Look, out of the showers, generally less than two millimetres. We might see five to ten millimetres if, um, if those thunderstorms um, do pop up. Um, but into, um, into Wednesday, we will see a, um, just a, a weak um, change um, a weak cold front just move um, over Tasmania and that will push um, winds southerly around the, um, the west and the south of Victoria during the, the morning before shifting westerly into the afternoon as we come under the influence of a, um, a high pressure system um, just to the, the south of, of Adelaide. Um, we will see um, the northwest to northeasterly winds um, remain about the northeast of um, of Victoria, with a, a trough just lying um, about the um, over central Vic, um, Victoria through the, the north. Um, we'll see some isolated morning showers about the, the south of the state, and then some isolated afternoon showers about the northeast and the eastern ranges. But we're generally looking at less than two millimetres in the rain gauge once again, um, out of any showers. Um, so. Once again, remaining fairly dry on um, on Wednesday. A little bit more in the way of um, precipitation on Thursday as another um, front passes to the south of Victoria. Um, but that will see the winds increase about um, the south of the, the state, um, mostly coastal locations. And we'll see the, um, the isolated showers push um, into the, the south. A bit more scattered, though, about the southwest coast. In terms of rainfall, um, we're generally looking at less than two millimetres on and south of the ranges on Thursday, um, and five to ten millimetres though might be possible about the southwest coast and um, the Otways. But it should remain dry and warm to hot um, about the, the northern plains into Friday. Those isolated um, morning um, isolated showers about the south should clear during the morning, um, and then we're looking um, at the, the day. Um, just being um, warm to hot um, throughout um, into the afternoon as the winds tend more northerly. Um, Saturday is going to be a, a hot day. We'll see a, a low pressure system approach um, from the, the west, just passing to the, the south of South Australia and an associated trough just moving into the, um, the west of um, Victoria late in the um, the day, but the northerly winds will begin to freshen on Saturday. We will start to see the, the fire dangers begin to increase on Saturday, um, and the winds will. So, with the um, those um, 
increasing winds. We'll see a, um, a hot day um, across much of the, the state. There will be some isolated showers just pushing into the southwest later um, on Saturday as that change moves through. But um, it's, it's the most significant day really um, because of those um, increasing winds, the, the fire danger um, and the, the wind change moving through um, western Victoria. Now that, um, that trough will just cross um, Victoria um, through um, the remainder of um, Sunday, um, oh, sorry, fairly early on Sunday, and we will see the, um, the shower activity um, sort of increase um, as the winds tend more southerly. Um, generally on, um, on Sunday we're looking at um, around um, you know um, what one to five millimetres about on and south of the ranges. Very little pushing um, north of the divide though. Um, so fairly um, remaining still fairly dry through um, through Sunday, and then a bit of model uncertainty coming in on um, on Monday and Tuesday based upon how quickly a high pressure system that um, that does form south of the bite um, progresses towards us. Generally, though, through Monday we're looking at southerly stream with um, the showers about the south easing back. So um, really only a, a millimetre or two really in those showers and then um, the model uncertainty continues into Tuesday as to whether we remain south to southeasterly or we tend a little bit more east to northeasterly which will um, see a little bit more shower activity um, if we do tend that way. Thank you for that report. Matthew, any warnings or anything else that our listeners need to know about today? No, we um we don't have any warnings at the moment. Um, today's really the the calm day, and um and it's really keep an eye out for for Saturday, particularly people about the west of the state. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Matthew. Okay, have a great day. You too, Matthew Thomas from the Bureau of Meteorology. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The Australian government has signed a deal giving Australian avocado growers access to the Indian market. On Saturday, the Prime Minister's office issued a joint statement with the Indian government welcoming the finalisation of market access for Australian Haas avocados. It's a significant boost to the industry that is experiencing a massive glut in supply and poor returns, which is making things unviable for many growers. David Clawton asked Anthony Allen, the CEO of avocado at marketing group Evolution, how significant this announcement is. Oh, I think it's massively significant. It's almost to the point of, of saving the um, Australian avocado um, growers from what is a very dire-looking outlook. Dire because of export markets or just production numbers? Production numbers and also lack... I mean, there's production numbers and also the ability to export to protocol markets. So all of our markets except for Japan um, are, free, are free and open markets, which, which are, are not... They're, they're, it's too simple to get in there and the volumes aren't there. So protocol markets are the ones that have the volume opportunity. And look, 1.3 billion people, really we only need to be, you know, have, you know, I'll, I'll take 50 to 100 million of them eating avocados. We don't need all of them to eat them. Could you describe India as the saviour of the Australian avocado industry in this case then? Well, it's, it's got the potential of being that. We've got to get it right and be able to do a good job but it certainly has got the potential of being the, the, I suppose, the light at the end of the tunnel, yes. And so what does that mean for your business? You're a marketing company. You, you, you market avocados internationally. Yeah, so the Evolution is the largest exporter of Australian avocados. Uh, we, we are already exporting to Southeast Asia, Middle East, 
um, mainly. So the opening of um, India, which is obviously a substantial um, uh, in, um, country and new consumer of avocados. So it's, uh, it's a very um, welcome change and a massive opportunity for the avocado industry in Australia. So they've never had avocados before? They've got avocados coming from um, uh, some South American um, countries and also from New Zealand. Um, so they've had a, a little bit of avocado going in, but all of those avocados generally have to go via um, air, which makes them very expensive and means it limits the kind of opportunity to get good consumer uptake. Whereas Australia is quite strategically placed to um, allow it to sea freight to India. How long would that take? Uh, around 26 to 30 days, which is what we do for other um, markets. Or we certainly did that during COVID, even for the closer markets. Um, so it's quite viable to send um, that length of time in a sea container. And what do they do with their avocados? Are they like Australians, they like to smash them up and put them on toast? Or how do they eat, eat them? It's a, it's a mix. Their food service sector, so their restaurant trade and their five-star hotel trade is, is massively into avocados already but and have it on the menu. But often when you're eating there, they'll say, oh, sorry, we can't serve you that because we haven't got any avocados at the moment. Mm. They have a massive um, Japanese restaurant trade there. So lots of cafes will have a you know a, an Indian menu but also have a Japanese menu. And... Mexican food is growing in, in popularity in um, India as well. So it comes at a great time for the Australian industry because production here is meant to double in the next few years, yeah? so that there is already a glut and, and pricing issues arising from that. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's perfect timing in terms of the ability for the industry to move forward out of what is a, an increased production. And the industry's been working on a number of export markets, and this is probably one of the key ones for it to actually eventuate. And we're certainly waiting to see what the protocol is. Um, we've not got access to that yet, but just the fact that they're saying they've announced that it's actually um, finalised is a massive leap forward for the industry. And what might, you know, if you've got a demand for avocados on the export market, where do you think it might settle for consumers then in Australia, you know, once India gets cranked up? What do you think people might be paying as a reasonable fair price for everybody for avocados in this country? Well, I think at the moment, the avocados across the country are sitting at around the $2 a piece mark. And that's probably about the balancing act that we all need to get to because that's a viable consumer experience around that, you know, if you fluctuate around that $2 mark. Um, and then that gives growers the right um, incentive to be able to um, continue to grow. Anthony Allen, the CEO of Avocado Marketing Group, Evolution. And that joint statement also announced that Indian Orca would have access to the Australian market. On ABC Radio Victoria, this is the Victorian Country Hour. Where it is 17 minutes to the news at one o'clock. Jane McNaughton is my name. Now, sheep producers will want to listen in to this last quarter of the show because in the Whitmore Mallee, uh, sheep producers continue to count the costs of the worst season of Barber's pollworm in more than a decade. The aggressive parasite has caused thousands of lamb deaths this summer, killing up to 15% of flocks. Paul Belt, Senior Veterinary Officer with Agriculture Victoria, says the wet spring is to blame. Look, certainly we've been seeing more problems up here than we would usually see. 
heavy worm burdens. We're seeing outbreaks of Haemorrhagus or Barber's pole worm as well, which is unusual in, the, in this area. And we probably put it down to, you know, the spring we had with a lot of water lying around and then, um, you know, little sprinkles during the summer which allowed green growth. Okay, so as you say, little sprinkles. We really have actually had quite a dry summer here, but those worm problems have persisted because of that exceptionally wet spring that we had. Well, it's set it up so that there's uh, areas that the worms can survive. They cycle through on the farm, so instead of you know normally it being an extremely hot and dry summer and drying out all the vegetation, there's been enough uh, green and, and moisture there to allow the worms to survive, and then they cycle through, get picked up by the sheep again, increase the worm burden again, produce more eggs, and it just cycles through again and again. Can you just explain what's actually happening within the animal? Why is, does a worm cause problems? Right, so there's, there's two different issues we see. So normally we see uh, just little brown stomach worms or ostatagia uh, and telodorsia that cause irritation to the lining of the stomach and it, it just basically means that the stomach can't absorb its nutrition as well as it normally does. Okay, so over time if you have a high burden it just means you're seeing a tail off, you're seeing production not being as good as it, good as it should be and you know, you, you, it's impacting production more than causing mortalities. What we're seeing this year though is with homonchus, it actually sucks blood. So the adult female uh, in the stomach actually sucks blood out. Each one sucks out about a tenth of a mil per day. So if you get a heavy burden, it very quickly makes the animals anemic. It actually sucks their blood, sucks their red blood cells out. And also they lose a lot of protein. So you get bottle jaw and things like that. So you get swellings around their things. We'll see very white animals, very weak. You try and move them and they collapse. So how quickly can, can an animal go from, from having a worm infestation to ultimately dying? So with the normal ones, it takes a long time. With homonchus, it's actually very quick. Like it can be, normally we talk about a lead-in time of two months. With homonchus, we're talking about two to three weeks. So they can go from being completely normal to, to basically dying and becoming weak and dying within three weeks in a heavy burden. This season, worst case scenarios that you've seen or heard, what are they in terms of deaths? We've seen uh, flocks with 10 to 15% uh, mortalities, so it depends on the size of the flock as to how many they have lost, and worm counts in the tens of thousands, so really high worm counts, and yeah, just very significant losses across the Wimmera and Southern Mallee. That was Paul Belts, Senior Veterinary Officer with Agriculture Victoria, speaking with Angus Furley. We're going to continue talking about the sheep market in just a moment, but just in some breaking news, Agriculture Victoria has revealed a cane toad has been found in luggage of a traveller in Melbourne. A South Yarra resident found the cane toad in their suitcase after returning from a trip to Fiji. It was reported to authorities and it has been identified as an overseas species. While cane toads are prolific in northern Australia, about four to ten are found in Victoria every year, usually in shipping containers, machinery and travel bags and shoes. The toad was in poor health and humanely euthanised at Melbourne Zoo. 
The number of lambs going through the sale yards across the East Coast are rising. And as we heard yesterday on the Country Hour, the spike in supply has been hitting sheep producers at the sale yards. This is being compounded by a large volume of lambs also being processed through the abattoirs as international demand drops. And the problems aren't just associated with the lamb market. Mutton prices have also recently been crashing. Industry analyst from Episode 3, Matt Delgleish, says despite the dip in prices for producers, meat prices are expected to remain high on supermarket shelves for months. In terms of demand, lamb market's pretty steady as she goes. If you look at the trend in exports for um, February, that, that is bang on the five-year trend pretty much. Um, the USA, who's our biggest market for lamb exports from Australia, is about 10% below their, their average kind of levels. But China's on trend and then all the other destinations are, are making up for the like, growth in those destinations in demand and making up for the the kind of gap that the USA are experiencing so far this year. So that means that you know, overall demand's on trend. But um, just looking at some of the, the volumes coming through the sale yard presently, um, volumes are higher. We've got higher slaughter, um, in, and this is in Victoria. If you look over the last four weeks or so, slaughter volumes are up by about 17%, um, but then yardings are up about 22% as of last week, you know, as in higher than this time last year. So it looks to me as though in the lamb space at least that demand's still strong overseas, but... Um, we're seeing higher volumes than we've seen in the last few years. So that's kind of counteracting that strong demand. And it's it's partially why we're seeing some of these prices slip a little bit. You were also having a look at the Wagga market yesterday for sheep. Did did that surprise you at all, the numbers there? Uh, Really big numbers for sheep. So uh, it was about 40,000 head of sheep came through Wagga and that's been steadily increasing the last three weeks to get to those levels. And with that big influx at Wagga, that's really pushed the East Coast. If you look at the East Coast sheep numbers in terms of yardings, uh, we saw 125,000 head of sheep uh, across the whole of the East Coast. Um, And if you go back to this time last year or this week last year, the numbers were around 77,000 heads. So you're talking a 62% increase in the number of sheep being presented at the yard, you know, the sale yard compared to this time last year. So it's just... It's just too much supply for, for, for the demand to soak up. And, and if you look at mutton exports, mutton exports have actually been booming since the start of the year, particularly in China. But it, it just appears as, as the, you know, too, many, too many numbers at the moment for, 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 um, for the market to absorb. Yeah, the, the mutton market really, the price has gone down quite sharply. That's right, yeah. So if you look at the you know, across the, the land complex, like you know, prices fell across most of the you know kind of sections over the last week. But since the start of the year, mutton's been, or it actually the the kind of rot set in last year because last year um, quarter quarter four of twenty twenty two, Chinese demand trailed off quite a bit, and that that started the decline in pricing, and and the pricing stayed kind of low this year. We saw a little bit of an uptick. Um, through February, but but the last week or so, it's kind of returned back to that you know three thirty cents a kilo carcass weight for mutton, which is nearly three hundred cents below this time last year. So yeah, it has it has taken some of the steam out of that particular market. And I just think, like I said, it's too much um, too much supply. Even though the demand from China has been like, if you look at January and February, they were the two strongest months for flows of mutton to China on record. Um, um, so they're absorbing quite a bit since the start of this year, but there's just too much coming. So when will it get to a point where, because we've come up such a high, when will it get to a point where producers are actually starting to lose money from selling their lambs? 
Uh, I think, see, if you look at, so mutton pricing obviously is the one that's taken a lot of the, the you know, kind of correction, whereas lamb pricing, um, you know, for some categories, particularly kind of heavy lamb and, and even uh, merino lamb, they're held up reasonably well. Um, you know, you, you still got, um, in terms of carcass weight pricing, you still got heavy lamb above 700 cents a kilo carcass weight, which from a historical perspective is still pretty good. Um, and, 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 you know, there's still, if you look around uh, parts of the country, because we've had such a wet lead into spring, it took a while for the grass to get going and for the warmth to come through, but there's a lot of soil moisture around. And there's areas where I am in the Western District where there's still tinges of green in the grass, you know, uh, in the under kind of undergrass. Um, which means that there's still you know, feed out there. Um, and, and that means if, if for those that are prepared to uh, run the risk of adding on a bit of extra weight, you are getting rewarded for that, for that with heavy lambs. Um, it's just a matter of you know, how, I guess, individual farmers' situations are in terms of what kind of grass coverage they've got, what kind of feed they've got, what kind of water source they've got. Um, I think at these prices still, if you look across the board, you know, the, the cheapest of the lambs, are, you know, the light lambs that are around, you know, just under 600 cents a kilo carcass weight. So they're still good prices. Um, I'd expect we still need, you know, uh, pricing to kind of continue to decline another, you know, 50 to 100 cent or so before it starts to, you know, starts to bite into the margin significantly. So has this reduced price in the sale yards been reflected in supermarkets yet? Uh, no, it does take, it does take quite a bit of time for it to flow through. It can be, you know, sometimes you don't see that kind of re reduced trend at the retail level, uh, you know, from three to six months. Uh, you know, so, so it, yeah, I can't expect that we're going to see um, significant uh, deflationary kind of pressures. Although in saying that the CPI measure that um, the ABS now put out a monthly a kind of indicator of CPI. It's it's not quite as robust as the quarterly figure in terms of how much they look at, but the meat and seafood category for the February monthly figure, uh, I think it was marginally softer. It wasn't. Uh, it was. I think it was about a point one or point three percent growth of inflation, but it, it was starting to turn. You know, if you look back to last year, meat and seafood was kind of you know five, six, seven percent inflationary movements over last year, whereas that that ongoing kind of price hikes are now started to moderate and the momentum's shifting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see into the next few months if we if we start to see um, a pullback in in retail pricing. But I suspect if it is going to come, it's probably more likely to come into quarter two uh, is when I think we might see it. But then that might coincide with uh, with sheep and lamb pricing at the sale yard starting to climb again because we often see that uh, coming into the winter period when supply starts to dwindle uh, is when we usually see the price peaks. So, you know, it'll just, be, it'll just be interesting to see how that plays out. It will indeed. Three to six months until the price of lamb is going to go down. Matt Delgleish there, industry market analyst from episode three. Let's head to the sale yards. <laughs> First up today, just down the road in Ballarat, we're joined by Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm not too bad. So what happened to lamb values today at Ballarat? Well, there was a significant drop through most categories. Um, buyers seemed to have full books and weren't that eagerly keen to bid. And when they did, they were on and off the rail during the sale. So it sort of took a... Every category took a bit of a steep. And who was actually buying there today? 
so we had domestic buyers, export buyers here, um, a few store buyers. There wasn't a great lot of store buyers here um, putting lambs back to the paddock, but there was a few. So that, that competition wasn't great today. And what did the different weight carcasses make today? Um, so you had your under 18 kilos uh, made from what, 38 to $126 a head. Over 18, this is back to the paddock, over 18 kilos, so 120 to 148. Um, trade lambs, light trade lambs made 78 to 124. The 18 to 22 categories made 112 to 155. 22 to 24 category made 148 to 176. 24 to 26 category was 155 to $200 a head and they averaged around three, uh, 630 to 680 cents a kilo carcass weight. So what was the general mood at the sale yard today about lambs? Uh, it was pretty sombre, to be honest. Um, there wasn't any great excitement. Um, uh, as you can imagine, producers weren't that happy that the prices are coming down week on week. They've sort of been coming down for a few weeks now. So, um, But just the general feel is the, um, all the meatworks around are full and not needing a great amount of lamb at the, this minute. It'll be an interesting one to watch. Thank you so much for your time, Shiona. No worries. Thank you. Shiona Lamb there in Ballarat. Let's head to Wodonga now for the cattle market. Good afternoon. Just over a thousand cattle sold to most of the usual buying group. Quality continues to be mixed throughout the offering. Trade cattle numbers did increase and there was some excellent grain assisted cattle on offer. Fillers are in short supply and heavy export steer numbers decline notably. And in the offering, there was a third made up of cows. The market sold to significantly cheaper trends over all classes. Vealers slipped 30 to 50 cents. The lighter weight veal, $2 to 280. The balance of the veal, $3 to 420. Trade steers sold 60 cents cheaper, $3 to 390. Feeder steers fell back 12 cents, $3 to 340 for the medium weights. Trade heifers sold 10 cents cheaper, 280 to 410. Heavy grown steers and bullocks were back 18 cents, 270. To 350. Cows suffered another price correction of 15 to 20 cents. Heavy cows 252 to 282. The middle run 210 to 260. And bulls topped at 308. I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Cheers, Leanne. Now to Shepparton with Nicole Varley for the cattle market. Good afternoon. Well, the numbers were back as 540 exports and 285 trade cattle were offered. Over half of the exports were cows. Not all buyers were present, particularly noticeable were the absence of several exporters and the quality of the yarding declined. Not much joy as prices slipped further across all grades of stock. The trade cattle were of very plain quality with breeding and condition being a major factor. The majority of the young cattle were more suited to go back to the paddock. The vealers made to 380, yearling steers reached a top of 420, most between 320 to 390, yearling heifer portion made from 280 to 385. There was only the odd pen of grown steers and bullocks with prices down there further. A few good lines of barren heavy heifers, they made from 320 to 360 cents, 500 to 600 kilo steers, 330 to 370. Heavy bullocks reached 337. The beef and dairy cows slipped is the best of the heavy beef cow well covered beef cows made from 245 to 295 cents the heavy Frisian cows 178 to 268 this is nicole varley from shepparton thanks nicole that's all we've got time for today on the country hour just a quick text here from george in strathdowney seven dollars fifty to eight dollars per kilogram of lamb is closer to the cost of production now it's not good prices at all most farmers are making a significant loss at seven dollars or less thank you so much so much for joining me today on the country hour i'll be back with you at the same time tomorrow have a fabulous afternoon 
It's coming up to the news at one o'clock.